Drink and Read presents Dune, Part 1, pages 1 through 52. Icy, spicy, the Atreidians are feisty, going for the melange and it's again a little dicey. Hello loyal listeners and welcome back to the season 2 technical premiere of Drink and Read, everyone's favorite boozy bookish podcast. I'm Jonathan Kwiatkowski, Benny Jesuit in training, an intrepid host and guide through Frank Herbert's Dune. I welcome one and all, old and new, to hop aboard a thopter, open up a cold drink, be careful not to get any spice or sand in it, and join me for this heck of a ride. If this is your first time aboard this literary train, can I get a choo-choo? And no, seriously, check out episode 00 for either season to know a little bit more about this podcast. The simple story is I'm Jonathan Kwiatkowski, I have a little drizzy drink while I'm reading some classic novels, and I recap the plot for you, so you don't have to. In these intro segments of the coming episodes for this season, I will be reviewing what we read briefly over the past few episodes, I'll be lingering on some themes, and I'll be correcting any mistakes that I make along the way, going in just saying, there are a lot of complicated names and nomenclature in this book, be prepared for me to butcher some, I understand we're all learning and growing as a community here, okay? But I will not waste my body's moisture on that. Uh, Something new that I've added to this season, season two of Drink and Read, is that I've taken detailed notes on each section we're going to read. Um, Last time, for a little peek behind the kimono while I was reading War and Peace, I would go chapter by chapter and give you a bit of a live read experience. That has been put aside. I do have the book open next to me. But along with that, I have a bevy of bountiful notes to read. So if things seem a little different, that's okay, as I tell myself every morning when I wake up and look at myself in the mirror, change is good. Yeah, change is good. But enough about that, as you may notice from the numbering on this episode, this is Dune Part 1. This is going to be a 12-week series in which we take a look at Frank Herbert's Dune. If you want to learn a little bit more about Frank Herbert and the background on why I chose this novel, what some things that you can expect, check out episode 00, the foreword for season 2. Now is the portion of the episode where I play teacher. You were assigned the first 52 pages of Dune. Did you read, Hanny? If not, it's okay. I will not be spot-checking your work, but I do suggest that you read along with me. It's really, uh, you know, comparable to that book club feel. Except the only one getting served snacks on this podcast is me. (laughs) On the category of snacks, why entitle the podcast Drink and Read, you may ask? Well, let me answer that question for you right now. There are two things I love to do in this world. I love to read a good book, and I like to drink a good drink. And I try to pick a themed drink that constantly devolves into either whiskey or wine over the course of each episode. But for now, since we're starting out, I'm full of vim and vigor. I think we're going to pick a themed drink. For this first episode, you may be thinking Dune, the planet Arrakis, sends something hot and tropical, and I said, no, 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 we do not start out on Arrakis, we start on the planet of Caladan, which is wet. Wet seal, Heaney. And I chose a lovely beer gifted from one of my friends called Lager of the Lakes, Bohemian Pilsner, um, because Caladan is a wet planet, very moist, and I felt that Pilsner could be a character name in Dune. Now, for anyone doubting that I would drink on the air, remember my slogan, always drink and read responsibly. Ah. 
Listen to that, it's totally not a soda can, I assure you. I promise. Mmm, that's some good pilsner. You know, I used to attest beer to the taste of piss water, and that makes sense, being then that we'll put on our still suits and trek through the desert throughout the course of the novel. Technically, they're drinking their own piss, but it don't taste like it. Alright, 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 I think that's all business taken care of. Without further ado, why don't we dive into this bad boy? Crack open that spine, let's jump into Dune. Now, Dune ain't your grandfather's book. It ain't divided into chapters. It is divided into epigraphs. And at the beginning of every epigraph, we get a little blurb from someone's bibliography. Of course, this is from the published works of Princess Irulan. And if you know her like I know her, Princess Arulan, she always got something today. You know, the eldest daughter of the 81st Padishah Emperor Shaddam IV? Come on, we all know her. Immediately thrust into this world building, all you need to know is that Arulan's a princess, we won't really meet her, but we'll hear from her, and she is the eldest daughter of the emperor who rules all of this known section of the galaxy. No biggie. Princess Arulan likes to act like that cousin who thinks she knows more at, like, the family gathering during the holidays where she's sitting there slurping on a sizzler and telling you all the tea that she heard. She does love to steal the thunder, and boy, I wouldn't know anything about that. And in tribute to her opening up each of these epigraphs, we will have a segment at the beginning of each entitled Irulan Elucidates, almost like a Sailor Moon says. You can also compare these to the Queer Eye segments at the end of the latest episodes where Jonathan Van Ness or Tam is like, Is your hair askew? Brush it, Hanny. Anyways, Arulan is describing how as a Bene Gesserit, now this is a big lingo for us, the Bene Gesserits are almost like a subtle cloister of Catholic-style psychic nuns that have mind powers. You know, no different from the normal Catholic nuns. And her entire life as part of this order was devoted to studying the Messiah that was one day prophesied, known as the Mob Adib. And not two sentences in, Irulan is already dropping breadcrumbs and spoiling the story for us. She says, hmm, hypothetically, if they were to exist, this Maudib would have been born in the 57th year, the reign of the Padishah Emperor Shaddam IV, aka the time we enter this novel. Alright, so she puts the timeline on blast, and then you're like, oh, is she gonna let us figure out the rest of the mystery for herself? No, she opens up Google Maps and, you know, zooms in on it and says, no, uh, the Ma Abdib was actually born and spent his first 15 years on the planet of Caladan, where, guess what? That's where we're opening this story. And not only this, the young Ma Abdib, after those 15 years, made a glorious trek to the desert planet of Arrakis, and that is where he truly discovered himself and his powers. Something tells me that that information is going to come in real handy real soon. So there's a messiah to be born, spends his first 15 years, and then heads off to Arrakis where shit goes down. This whole initial passage by Arulan reminds me of people who are from Newark, Jersey, but claim they're native New Yorkers, even though they know for a fact that our pizza is actually better than theirs, but go ahead, sound off, Miss Arulan. But here we are, opening the novel. Picture it, the planet of Caladan, which Denny Villeneuve makes it look like a setting in one of his other films, Arrival. Picture lapping waves, tons of moisture, mossy cliff faces, lacking everything but Heathcliff screaming through the moors. That's a lit culture joke, y'all. Young 15-year-old Paul Atreides, son of Duke Leto I and his concubine Lady Jessica, are all prepping for an extended family workation on the desert planet of Arrakis. Take a shot every time I mention that name. 
Now, the family dynamics are interesting. Duke Leto is a loving father. He's also a strict militaristic, you know, person at heart. Paul has nothing but good eyes for both his parents. And Lady Jessica is very clever, but she has not received the official title of wife. She is just concubine, and I don't know how I feel about that, but they do some things to spice up Jessica's character for the better. Flip the page, and suddenly, just like a Vanessa Hudgens holiday movie, who should appear but an old crone? Now, I do love an old crone scene. Um, is it even a story without an old crone scene, I should be saying? But this does bring some sort of ominous atmosphere only two sentences into the novel. Like, whenever an old lady shows up at my door, I'm pretty sure that they're either going to give me flores paramos huertos, they're going to ask me, have you ever heard of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior? Or they're going to hand me an enchanted rose, and I'm going to shove the door in her face and turn into a beast. Just saying, very little comes from old crones knocking at the door in the dead of night, but maybe this time will turn out differently. This old crone is revealed to be the Reverend Mother Gaius Helene Moyahim, and she peers at Paul as he is sleeping with Lady Jessica, clicks her tongue, and says, This? This is the Messiah? Ugh, we're screwed. We will hear this on and on again throughout the entire novel, but the Bene Gesserit faith, which um, Jessica is a part of, they have this whole eugenic system where they're trying to breed a messiah prophesized by them by mixing and matching. Uh, you could sleep with that person, oh, you can have a boy, you can have a girl, but they're constantly going throughout history, hoping that one day they will give birth to this perfect person. This perfect person would be known as the Kwisatz Hederach and is constantly name-dropped around Paul. They're almost like certain, like, Jessica's feeling it, maybe he's the one prophesies, Reverend uh, Helen Moyahim is like, mm, I don't know right now, but uh, get used to that title, Round Paul, along with many other titles to come. And over the course of this opening scene, Lady Jessica is getting reamed by the Reverend Mother, and in the Catholic hierarchy of things, it does make sense, you can't really back off a nun that's higher up than you, otherwise they'll put a curse on you! That curse would be along the lines of, Jesus considers you more of a friend, and uh, may your pasta sauce never cling to your capanelli. Even though these two biddies are having a loud conversation in the next room over, Paul wakes up and seems to taking, you know, a Dementor at the foot of his bed pretty well. And Paul has had some ESP psychic mind training from his Lady Jessica. It's kind of an inherited tradition for the Bene Gesserit to pass these skills down. And he wonders, I wonder why mom was fighting with that old woman and asking her, like, no, uh, Paul shouldn't be stuck with this thing called the Gum Jabbar. And Paul, like a child, easily broaches the subject and changes it to something new since he's giving the exposition of the novel. He recalls his father's featured assassin, Hufer Hawat, a mentat or human supercomputer, and wonders what skills he learned from him that he could pass down when traveling to the planet Arrakis. A little bit of backstory I'll gift you there. In the Butlerian Wars, or Butlerian Jihad, prior to the novel events, uh, there was a war on all technology in which the humans rose up against their technological oppressors, and the result was technology bad, but human supercomputers, or mentats, able to access all kinds of information immediately are A-OK. -okay. Because if you can't love yourself as a human supercomputer, how in the hell are you gonna love somebody else as a human-bred supercomputer? Am I right? Can I get a amen? Also, another tangent while we're on the subjects. I get the biblical reasoning with names like Thufur and Moyahim, but then we settle on Paul and Jessica for our heroes? Does that stand out to anyone else? It feels like that moment in Monsters vs. Aliens where Seth Rogen says, Fear the mighty Susan. No, just me? Okay, we're gonna stick with them? Alright. 
Our major family of Paul, Leto, and Jessica compromise the Atreides, and the Atreides have some Shakespearean mortal enemies known as the Harkonnen. The Harkonnen are some bad mamajamas, and they dipped out of the desert planet Arrakis after 80 years by command of the Emperor, and are to be replaced by House Atreides. So this is a bit suspicious, the tension is very high, what's going on, why did they get out, and why are they asking us to go there, where we don't know our surroundings, and we could be easily killed off by our mortal enemies. The main draw of going to Arrakis is, one, they can't uh, disobey the Emperor's direct order, and two, on Arrakis is the major commodity of the known universe. No, it's not straw, no, it's not wheat nor sheep. It is the spice melange, which is essentially the Starbucks coffee of space travel. And there might be a secret vendetta on this planet, but that spice makes everything taste sweeter, no? Also, Duke Leto seems like a good guy, so I'm sure everything's gonna be fine. He's super popular. Paul lays his head down to sleep and has visions or dreams of the sandy sands and the duny dunes of the planet Arrakis. His dreams could be considered prophecies, another sign of this prophet that the Bene Gesserit have predicted. He will have visions of things to come. You can just refer to Paul Atreides as the new Mystic Meg. Paul is excited to arrive on Arrakis and meet the people of the planet, the Fremen, and learn from them and grow. And just as he's excited, Mom comes in and goes, Uh, Grandmother Reverend Mother wants to talk to you about your dreams. She's kind of freaked out, and Jessica is not concealing, not feeling. This does not seem like a good conversation is about to happen. So Paul dresses and shows up, and Reverend Mother is just chilling there like, I may be old and dusty, but there's something about Polly A here that I can't put my finger on, and I might tell the Emperor about because I am his head truth-sayer, aka his right-hand bitch. And her internal monologue is everything. I mean, I love this character, and she's just introduced in the first epigraph. <laughs> but she's like, oh, I told that Jessica. If she was going to have any kind of baby with Duke Leto, she should have had a girl, and she was denied having a boy. But she went against me anyway, and look where we are now, huh? Nobody listens to Reverend Mother. Also, their millennia-long genetics program, that throws a red flag into the mix if I've ever saw one. If someone mentions that at a casual conversation, get up and run. So this old biddy looks Paul up and down and goes, hmm, he has the same eyes of his grandfather, who I may or may not have a liaison with in the past. Ooh, do tell a reverend mother Moyahim. And she asks Jessica, have you been teaching the boy well? And Jessica's like, yeah, we teach him math, history, and oh yeah, the ability to command people to do whatever he wants using his voice, which is something that we pass down through the generations of Benny Gesserit training. Yeah, we do practice that. Um, what? Yeah, the Bene Gesserits, along with being some psychics people, uh, they can use their voice at certain pitches to make people of lower mental capacities do exactly what they want. Paul is instructed by his mother to do whatever Grandma Gooch says, and remember who he is. Jessica dips out, and she's practically crying. Never a good sign. Really comforting Ma, way to go. The Reverend Mother looks Paul up and down and considers, you know, listening to Paul for a second before using her voice to command Paul over to kneel before her. And she asked Paul, I have this little box here, this uh, unassuming little box. I want you to stick your hand in it, and I have to ask, what's in the box? And she replies, pain. Pain is in the box. Once Paul's hand is in the box and the bag is secure, <laughs> uh, the Reverend Mother pulls out the Gumjabar, a needlepoint full of the most deadly poison in the universe, and says if Paul even shows so much as a sign of struggle, uh, the Reverend Mother will end his life here. Wow, I mean, like, can a guy have a cup of coffee before this happens, or...? Also, most lethal poison, honey, you could have dabbed that needle in some tequila, honey, and it would have done just the same. Am I right, or am I right? 
Now all you have to do, Paul, is keep your hand in the box and experience excruciating pain without taking out. If you take your hand out, I will kill you. So there's that. No pressure, though, sweetie. Jessica is revealed to have done this exact thing before, and she's outside waiting, and by the time you die, no one will get through to save you, sweetie, so you're gonna have to go through with it, too. Paul realizes he's at an impasse with this old woman, and thanks to his teachings, he recalls that the greatest saying that his mother taught him is, fear is the mind killer, don't be afraid. Uh, his hand starts itching, then burning, why are you doing this? And then <laughs> Reverend Mother replies, I'm doing this to see that you are human, dear. Uh, okay. Suddenly, as the pain manifests in the most, you know, excruciating way possible, it stops and Paul is revealed to have passed the test. Reverend Mother Biddy goes, oh, I thought you wouldn't live, and the reason why there's pain in that box is because it's nerve induction, silly. And the Reverend Mother, as vague as always, is like, why do we do this? Well, we use people like pieces of sand that we sift through a sieve, and then one day, hopefully, we will find the Kwisatz Haderach out of all this work. Paul responds to this like any teenager would and goes, I hate you, you old crone, and I hate everyone like you. And the Reverend Mother dips out and goes, take a number, Jessica hates me too. And you know, I kind of do what I kind of do. Hate is gonna hate, and she trollops on out of there. We get a couple closing lines that that test was just to make sure that you were truly human. You know, we have this vendetta against all kind of robotics. We get a, a shout out to the new version of the Catholic Bible known as the OC or Orange Catholic Bible. And it sounds like a packed spinoff of the OC, right? <laughs> California! Then we learn about the two main factions of space in general underneath the Emperor's rule. We have the religious side with the Bene Gesserit, and then we have the more commercial side with the Space Guild that handles the trade businesses of the universe. The Bene Gesserit's job is to visit planet and planet and indoctrinate the people there into their religion, hoping that one day a savory will come. And if that ain't a true blue commentary on current day Christianity, honey, I don't know what is. And in ending our first epigraph, the Reverend Mother details how truthsayers like herself can take truth trance or some spice melange when it's mixed on an arrakis and see the past, the present, and future all at once. However, only the one predicted, the Kwisatz Hederach, can breach the realms thought impossible to reach and live. Could this be Paul, she asked herself, and all I can say is, me no no. Epigraph 2, Rulon elucidates, this is a story all about how House Atreides had some enemies set on bringing them down, so why don't you take a minute detox distress before I tell you about the cold cats of House Harkness. Translation, something is rotten in the state of Dunemark. Here are the bad guys who tried to kill the mob Deeb. Hope that doesn't happen. Thanks, Rulon. Epigraph 2, we got the intro to our hero. It only makes sense that we're introduced to our main baddie, Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, whose first descriptor involves his fat hand and his many rings. Picture the most disgusting evil blob you can imagine, and give that blob some googly eyes and a face, and that is none other than Baron Harkonnen. You might know him from cultural detox, just being around things, exposure to memes and such, but he's the fat person who's in the flying suit that, you know, commits crimes and atrocities while giddily eating things. And let me tell you, the Baron is awful. He is a pedophile, he is a sadist, he is a masochist, he kills for pleasure, but his monologues in this, as, you know, hyped up by my friends and family who said, you gotta read Dune for the Baron, really do pay off in the end. It's like villainy to a T. He is trying for either an Oscar or a Golden Raspberry, and I can't see the difference in it. It is camp he is giving us. 
And the Baron is so full of glee because he's monologuing to himself about how he set it up the greatest man trap in history to bring down House Atreides, uh, using both his nephew, Feyd-Rautha, and his manservant, Piter, who happens to also be a man-tat. As I just said, this book was sold to me, stating that I would love the Baron's chapters because he's always scheming and overdramatic, and so far, with his basso profundo voice and his whole hovercraft, I think it's backing up those claims. Another thing to get used to throughout Dune is that we skip around from character perspective to character's perspective, so get used to it. One day we'll be with Paul, the next day we're going to be with the Baron, sometimes we'll be with Jessica, maybe even we'll be with a, a Keebler elf at one point, I don't know. And whenever a character's introductory verb is fondling, I think we can assume that that person may not be invited to Thanksgiving dinner. So the Baron's sections read, he's fondling a giant globe with lots of musical and food references. We get it, Baron, you are bougie and love to eat. You're literally a human hedonism bop from Futurama. Jambi, the chocolate sauce! And the snubbery of it all, the reason why he's plotting murder is because Duke Leto refused to meet him in person because obviously he would kill Duke Leto if they ever saw each other in person? I mean, come on, Baron. But no matter to the Baron, because he's going to use the Atreides and or the planet of Arrakis to set the stage for the greatest revenge plot in history. <laughs> A.K.A. the perfect demise of his house of mortal enemies. It's petty, but I do love the theatrics of it all, I do have to admit. It's very Count of Monte Cristo. Piter, the manservant Mentat, gives his two cents, and the Baron thinks, Well, I don't like when Piter talks back to me. We've been through a lot, but I gotta get rid of this guy quick. And there's, like, some vague sexual tension between the two that I just don't like, and I find icky. Piter and Baron Harkonnen kind of have a boss-worker relationship. Think Mr. Burns and Smithers thing going on where the Baron's plan is shown to be all over the top and just spurned by a simple jealousy. He's really flying off the handle at the bare minimum, I see. Fayed Rautha, the Baron's nephew, is kind of antsy being there with these two old tugboats going at it. The Baron ignores him and tells him he's got to learn how to play this game of intrigue in order to succeed. Alright, we're not playing Catan here. We didn't know about intrigue right now. And he tells these two about his stupid plan. Within House Atreides, there is already a spy. And he reveals that spy to us immediately. It's the family doctor, Dr. Yue. Piter suggests that they make a bold move, and the Emperor will have him and his house killed next. And the Baron goes, I don't fucking care. My enemies will be dead. I'm gonna do what I want. Big Cartman energy. Apparently, along with this plan, the Baron promised his nephew, Lady Jessica, for both pain and pleasure. Ew! And his conversation drifts to how Piter is growing too emotional and is wrong in his predictions lately, so he better get used or find a new line of work or, you know, dig a ditch, because he's not going to be long for this world if he keeps it up. Piter falsely, but in a way correctly predicted that the Bene Gesserits said, oh, Duke Leto's going to have a daughter, but we learned that Jessica went against those wishes and chose to have a boy instead, even against her teachings. And Piter's like, technically I'm not wrong, I think she just went against what I predicted, and the Baron goes, well, your survey says that's wrong, honey, and you've been huffing too much spice melange, so get back on track. There's some more catty internal banter where these two show that they wouldn't really get rid of each other one way or another. I feel like Piter has some other services to do with the Baron that we don't really want to read about before or after eating something. 
There's a snide comment from the Baron aimed at Piter where you are a mentat, maybe those old school computers were onto something, at least I didn't sass back and feel things. The Baron wants to give his nephew Fayed the deets on how he's going to destroy his enemies. Piter is against it because Fayed is young, inexperienced, and a bit of an arse. The Baron, never one to be snubbed, goes against Piter's recommendation and explains to Fayed, who's just excited to be reaching uh, sugar baby terms with his uncle, that Duke Leto and the Atreides family will show up to Arrakis and the city of Arrakeen because it is easier to defend, and since they know where their enemies are going, they can plot their destruction from within even easier. It is possible that the Duke forfeits his power and scoots off to space and defects from the Empire, but due to Duke Leto's pride, he's going to stay and try to do better than we did on that planet. While House Atreides is there, we've arranged an attempt on young Paul's life that could or could not succeed. It's kind of just use a distraction and to lull them into a false sense of security. And then uh, we're going to strike while the iron's hot. Dr. Yue, our traitor, is actually a hired assassin, and even though his training prevents him from assassinating those who he caretakes, uh, we do have a betting chip to use against him. He wants information on his wife that may or may not be dead at the hands of the House Harkness, but uh, if he wants to see that wife or learn about her, he's going to do exactly what we ask him to. In the whole kerfuffle of the thing, they're going to make it seem like the Duke's concubine, Lady Jessica, Paul's mother, enacted the whole plan to bring the family down from the inside. Like, do a crossword or Sudoku puzzle something, bro. You got way too much time on your hands to be planning the genocide of your archenemy's family. Once this is over, House Harkonnen will cause a few revolts over the planet and give Dr. Yue the signal to act. This will lower Arakeen's defenses, so then the Harkonnen can swoop in and finish the job. It's brilliant, 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 I tell you, genius, I say. With some secret Harkonnen forces, they've also bribed the Emperor's personal bodyguards, the Swadikar, who are trained fighters through like the prison system, to sneak on board without the Emperor knowing and finish the job even further. So part of me makes me think that the Emperor might be in on this whole scenario, but in the long run of things, I don't think he actually is because the Baron's making such a big deal about keeping this hidden from the Emperor. Then we learn that the real reason the Baron is doing this is technically over money. In the uh, vast universe, there's one business conglomerate that controls most of the economy, and this is known as the Combine, Hanet, Ober, Advancer, Mercantiles, or simply Chome. You know, a house is not a Chome. And pulling a Pirates of the Caribbean, it's just good business. He wants to re-control the planet and do better than he did the first time to further impress the Emperor and line his own pockets with that spice melange money. If all this goes according to plan, the Baron will be in control again and the profits will be astounding. And the excellent thing is House Atreides can't even seek help from the Fremen because the desert people are just rude and don't like outsiders, and I'm sure hoping that they don't partner up in some way over the course of the novel against a greater evil, oh, I don't know, maybe House Harkonnen? I'm just saying. Even if Duke Leto feels this is a trap, and I know he does, uh, his pride won't let him back out of this whole scenario, so it's a mouse going to the trap for cheese. The Baron revels in his stupidity, evilness, and uh, demands more food. I am hungry. Hungry for blood. Bum bum bum. What's gonna happen? 
Epigraph 3, Rulon elucidates, To be the Reverend Mother of the Bene Gesserit, you gotta be equal parts smoking and sanctimonious, baby. It's only by existing in the space will you develop the knowledge and cunning crucial to bringing down these men from be the between me down there that all men have. Alright, I'm kinda liking the Reverend Mother more and more the more I read about her. If we can infer from Rulon's elucidating, we're back on Caladan with the Reverend Mother and Jessica having a conversation about what the fuck just happened with Paul. Jessica recalls the intense pain she felt when she was put through the same box trial by the Reverend Mother in her teaching, and we do get this uh, notion that maybe Jessica's not revealing her direct relationship with the Reverend Mother just yet. Through her Bene Gesserit training, Jessica was commanded to have a daughter, but Leto asked for a son. Come on, Mulan. How are we going to defeat the Huns, am I right? Jessica went against all of her training and forcibly chose to have a son who she believed one day could possibly be the Kwisatz Haderach, the messiah figure that the whole genetics program had been striving towards. I know all um, mothers and fathers who have a newborn know that their baby is probably the most special, beautiful thing, but Jessica takes that to a whole nother level. Reverend Mother is all like, you blew it, Jessica, but Jessica is like, well, did I actually blow it? Because we got our Messiah figure a little bit earlier than predicted, allegedly. The whole book is just like, is Paul the Messiah? He's obviously it. Arulon has told us two sentences in, yes, we know Paul's the Messiah, but everyone else is like, I'm not so sure. He hasn't proved himself in this way yet. The Reverend Mother continues to twist the knife, saying, You may have thought this was a good idea, Jessica, but now everybody's gonna be out and wanna whoop your ass every time they see you on the street. We got a lot of enemies here, huh? Chome will stop at nothing to make money, and this whole governmental hierarchy thing that's going on, and now the Messiah's involved? Good luck, honey. Everyone's gonna have beef with you. And your son. The Guild has a monopoly on interstellar transport, the Imperial and Federated Great Houses are always at each other's throats with petty real housewives drama, so we are screwed politically too, Jessica. Thanks, Jessica. The Reverend Mother continues to get gold stars from me because she tells Jessica to shut up. Then this petty squabble evolves into something of a little bit of a maternal connection in which the Reverend Mother goes, oh, I wish I could take your place. But JK, not really because that's gonna suck. And the Reverend Mother, she really just showed up to this planet to A, visit Jessica, and B, get a glimpse at Paul before she go tells the Emperor what she saw. I didn't know Royal Truthsayer was synonymous with Royal Snitch. Paul saunters in, and the Reverend Mother asks him what he dreams about, and she's like, well, not me, I hope. Paul turns out to be dreaming about uh, this girl that he sees with solid blue eyes, and they're in a desert cave, and reveals that his dreams often come true, but not exactly in the way that they were expected to. These are more like vague hints of what may happen in the future instead of coming out directly and saying this will happen. Still a handy tool, I mean he can gaze into the future, and you may think life may be a breeze, but uh, if you travel from a distance, go rave, it's not that easy. Thank you, that's so raven. This young girl in Paul's visions keeps calling him by the name of Usul, which will definitely come up later. Then they continue to hold hands and drop some sick bars with a song about seagulls and crashing waves. Paul makes a comparison to another character we're about to meet in a few chapters or so, Gurney, the family warmaster who is constantly singing on his balalaika, and Jessica, considering the words of the song that was just shared with her, says, oh yeah, that's definitely one of our secret order order's poems. How did Paul get the lyrics to it, huh? 
Before Grandmother Reverend dips out, Jessica's like, Paul, don't you want to ask this old biddy for some help? She may know some things, Paul asks, and the Reverend Mother goes, No, I'm not concerned with helping you, but I'm going to give you this one vague hint. All you need to know is that which submits rules. That's a secret mouse tool we're going to use later. And then Paul, in response, draps one of the best lines I've ever read in the English language. You fatuous old witch with her mouth full of platitudes. If this ain't a way to describe me, my wig flew off into space, baby. Paul proceeds to get pissed and is like, Stop talking about my father as if he's already dead. He's sleeping in the next room. He may be dumb and not know what's going on, but he sure as heck ain't dead yet. Yeah, honey, your father, I think he's not going to be so well for so long, and there's nothing I can do about that. Jessica, the training wheels are off. Train this young pup in the voice. Bye, young hater. I hope you live and we meet again. If we don't, oh well, no skin off my bones. My old, old bones. But that crunchy Reverend Mother reveals her soft nougaty center because Jessica swears as the Reverend Mother is leaving that she can see that her cheeks are tear-stained. You really do care. Epigraph 4, Arulan elucidates, Paul had no friends when growing up on Caladan, but he had a crew of seasoned old dudes who taught him how to chew bubblegum and kick ass, and he's been out of bubblegum for some time. First up, it's Gurney Halleck, who's a trained combat instructor, and as in you're gonna need one after he's done with you, he also likes to play the balalaika and sing. Next up is the aforementioned assassin, the Mentat Thufur Hawat, who is one mean mother Mentat, and the one who needs no introduction, Funkin' Dunkin' Idaho, a swords master and overall baller with the best name in history and the novel. Duncan Udaho? Duncan Midaho? No, Duncan Idaho. Idaho potatoes, baby. Then lastly, we totally have the innocuous, the totally not suspicious, won't betray your family for secrets, Dr. Wellington Yue, and uh, Rulon has a similar viewpoint on him, saying that his name is etched black in treachery, but bright in knowledge. I sure hope that he doesn't betray the family Atreides or anything. Hmm. Taking a page out of the Adams Family values, Thufur creeps up on Paul a la Gomez sneaking up on Fester to surprise attack him. You know, that classic training montage where I'm gonna jump at you out of the closet and I'm gonna try to stab you and you're gonna have to fight me off because this is real life, kid. Paul is casually just chilling and he goes, I know the sound of these footfalls. Thufur, is that you? And he says, Paul, I told you once, I told you a hundred times, never sit with your back to a door because someone can come up and stab you. The reason for this visit, unbeknownst to Paul, is that Thufur was sent by Duke Leto in order to test Paul one final time just to make sure that he's okay, you know, transitioning to the planet Arrakis. What is up with testing Paul every single chapter? Is this the Terra Nova? Paul has many questions about the planet and the Fremen who live there. They wear still suits to apparently conserve water and drink their body's own moisture to survive. Also, it's hella hot on this planet. Make sure you pack some sunscreen, Paul. Paul finds some time a wee bit later for some self-introspection, and he's thinking about the hint that the Reverend Mother gave to him, working on his voice and trying to get better with it, and he's contemplating the words, a ruler persuades, doesn't command. Uh, Arrakis apparently will not be as bad as it's cracked up to be. Maybe there'll be many more Fremen than we expect, and they'll be friendly towards us because I think we both hate the Harkonnen. Paul is thankful for his friendship, surrounded by these older men who have taught him all the lessons that he's experienced in life, and goes, you know, I'm gonna make a new start on Arrakis. This is my Oregon Trail. Let's hope you don't get dysentery on Arrakis, though, otherwise you'll be wiping with a sand dune, Paul. 
Gurney Halleck, who no isn't a character from the Black Cauldron series, also comes in to, you guessed it, Tess Paul. Gurney, as I said, has a passion for playing a balalaika-like instrument, and oh, the tears are welling up in my eyes, guys. Do you remember War and Peace? Ugh. And Gurney is kind of crotchety, but in a charming Sundare sort of way, and Paul has a clear love for him. Everybody's favorite drag king, Duncan Idaho, is already on Arrakis, getting to know the Freemen better so they might have some information to give the Atreidians when they arrive there. Gurney's about to sit down and play his balalaika, singing a song about Chaldean women, but then he goes, All right, Paul, it's time to fight. One quick spar, and I'll know what I need to know. In Dune, all of the combatants wear this new zany shield technology that encourages fast defense and slow attack, as only slower weapons and projectiles can pierce this energy shield around them. And if you've seen the David Lynch version of this, it's like they turn into characters from Minecraft, and it's kind of hilarious, but I get it, the appeal of it. Paul gets in a smashing use of the word dolt here, and the fight ends in a draw. Paul suggests that, oh, I'm not in the mood for fighting, Gurney, and Gurney's like, I think the fuck you are, like you get to choose when the fight goes down? Mm. And then the first time of many, and it goes on throughout the entire novel, that's nearly 600 pages, we get Paul having a quick thought like, does Gurney want to fight me again because he's a traitor to our family? No, I love Gurney, that can't be it. And this continues and flip-flops from character to character throughout the entire novel. Get used to this intrigue, people. This sparring ends in another draw, where Paul has his knife at um, Gurney, but Gurney reveals that his knife is also at ex uh, Paul's exposed, like, stomach area, and he goes, if we would have fought to the finish, it would have ended a draw anyway. I'm glad you fought with your most gusto, though, Paul. And Gurney thinks to himself, I only really sparred with Paul right now because Duke Leto ordered it, and I also wanted to test Paul, make sure that he's adequate enough to make it to Arrakis, and protect himself. Paul feels Catholic guilt and ashamed for doubting slash distrusting Gurney. And, you know, he's still a kid at heart and just wants a little break from all the seriousness that's been going on in his life lately. He's only 14, 15, so yeah, it's understandable. I mean, the only time my father ever challenged me to a fight was every birthday party, every holiday, some Saturdays. Hmm. Also, give Paul a break. He just stuck his hand in a pain box two weeks ago. Gurney's gruff exterior doesn't melt. He says to Paul, Play is all well and good, but we need to be on our guard when it comes to Harkonnen adversaries. We can never trust them, and they always get us when we are believingly at our strongest. And we get a little bit of Gurney backstory where he remembers his kid sister, who died too soon, in a Harkonnen pleasure house. He then drops the iconic line, If wishes were fishes, we'd all cast nets. I wonder if Paul feels the same. And in our last epigraph of today's episode, epigraph 5, we get a little magnifying glass turned about onto one Dr. Yue. Arulon continues to elucidate, saying that Yue Wellington was a medical doctor, loving husband, and betrayer of the Great One, Duke Leto I Atreides. It's real who-lives-who-dies-who-tells-your-story vibes. Doctor, this story is gonna paint you as the villain, and not even your MD is gonna change that. So Dr. Yue is doing his job and checking in on Paul after his training slash sparring, and Dr. Yue has this interesting diamond forehead tattoo of the Imperial Conditioning and a Sook School Signet Ring. So, in his past, if you're going to uh, serve a great family in this Duneverse, you have to get conditioned so you won't turn against the family you serve. Now, hypothetically, this would make Paul and his dad and mom safe from any inside attack from Dr. Yue, but we will come to learn a little bit more information that somehow Yue has broken this conditioning in order to, you know, fulfill his agenda. 
Also, pay attention to these signet rings. They really play a large role in the token symbolism of the novel. What is this, revolutionary girl Utena? Uh, I mean, it is an anime joke. I have to stick to my roots. Listen to anime was not a mistake, y'all. Yue updates Paul and says, Your father's coming soon, but first I have a few prezzies for you. Here's some film books for you to watch before we make the trip to Arrakis. With Frank Herbert's curmudgeonly view on technology, I wonder what he would feel about the iPad. I bet you he would have one anyway. And while he's giving these gifts, Yue is thinking in his mind, Oh, it's such a shame Paul's going to be dead and betrayed soon. Oh well. What a waste, but don't mind that. When we arrive on Arrakis, the ecologist for the whole planet, Dr. Kynes, will give us the skinny. But it is common courtesy to educate yourself beforehand. Just like when you go and, uh, I don't know, view a motion picture or some theater. Yue may seem like a nefarious traitor, but actually inside, he's disgusted by himself playing both sides in this vendetta, and he totally doesn't want to use the Atreidean family as these bargaining chips in order to get the information he seeks from the Baron. Paul wants to see pictures of the Fremen with his visions of the solid blue-eyed Fremen girl. Uh, the people of this planet's pupils turn solid blue due to the constant exposure of the spice melange. The women are equally as fierce as the men and trained in combat and swordplay, so they are not to be underestimated. Paul is then shown a video sample of a small sandworm only 110 meters long and 22 meters in diameter, about one-third as tall as the current-day Eiffel Tower, and that was just a baby. Some are larger than 400 meters have been recorded, and that is the length or half of the Burj Khalifa in Dubai, aka the tallest current building in the world. Another interesting thing about Arrakis is, although the planet is covered mostly in desert, the Arrakis's polar ice caps are nigh untouchable due to the fierce desert storms that pop up unpredictably. Before leaving the room, Yue gifts Paul with a pocket edition of the Orange Catholic Bible, which is still kinda taboo because it's physically written down, but it was made long before film books, and this will be our little secret between Paul and Yue. Help build that trust before I stab you in the back. Paul reads from the book at the request of Yue and is stopped when Yue snaps at him for reading what happens to be his dead wife Juana's favorite passage, and he vows revenge on all Harkonnen kind. It could have been just well-worn to that page, but we go back and forth between was it fated that Paul would read that, or is it just, you know, a happy coincidence that Paul happened to pass that passage. Ooh, that was a tongue-twisty sentence. Paul politely thanks Yue for the gift and is preparing to wait for his father to come into the room, and then Dr. Yue laments how he let himself get caught up in this Harkonnen drama in the first place. And here we end our first episode of Drink and Read Presents Dune. Congratulations! We got to meet our major protagonist, being Paul Atreides, and then our major villain, being the Baron Harkonnen. So we'll see what these two get a little head-to-head -head on as the novel progresses. Of course, we were introduced to our side characters. We have Lady Jessica, Duncan Idaho, uh, Thufur Hawat. We got Dr. Yue here. We still haven't met Paul's father, which will be a great looking forward to segment in the next few chapters. And what of Paul Atreides' visions of that blue-eyed girl and the planet Arrakis? Well, you'll have to stay tuned and keep reading to find out. Just as a casual reminder, based on the Ace Trade paperback edition for week two, um, where the episode will come up around or on January 17th, you are responsible for reading pages 53 to 105. On the next episode, we will meet Paul Atreides' dad, the Duke Leto I. We will see how the Atreidians adjust to living on Arrakis, and there will be plenty of intrigue, because let's just say Dr. Yue's done a good enough job hiding that he's the traitor, and there's enough people around at each other's throats to hide the blame. 
Before I go, just a quick thank you as always to you, the humble listeners. This podcast would be nothing without you. And uh, I just want a casual reminder, if you do like the sound of my voice or my commentary, feel free to tune into my other two podcasts. First off, we have Nightcaps at the Theater, where me and a couple friends get a little drizzy drunk and watch some classic and not-so-classic movies. And then secondly, as already plugged in this podcast, if anime is more of your penchant, then please tune in to Anime Was Not a Mistake, co-hosted by myself and the loyal Dan Ryan. Till then, dear readers, make sure that when you whiff that spice, you are prepared to do so. Do not fear as it is the mind killer. And of course, remember to drink and read responsibly. Thank you for listening to Drink and Read. Hosting for this podcast brought to you by Anchor. This podcast can also be found on Spotify, Pocket Cast, and more. If you have any thoughts or questions, or any beverage recommendations, please feel free to reach out to us on drinkandreadpod at Instagram. Support of this podcast is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you.